0: Hello, and welcome to Farmers Capital Conversations. I'm your host, Casey Silveria. This podcast aims to expand your social, intellectual, and economic capital. Investing on and off the farm is hard enough. Here, we will provide insightful stories and resources to help out. Full transparency, this is our shameless way for you to like us and hopes you partner with us down the road. Lastly, there are no ads here. All I ask is you enjoy and share if you find value. Now, on to
1: the episode. be looking at implementing regenerative practices as offensive management tools. It's got to make return on investment. We're we're running businesses here. Um, Just like, you know, if you're going to diversify where your investments are, it's got to create return on investment. It's got to be a smart business decision. Same thing when it comes to regenerative ag relay cropping is just one of the really unique ways that we've been able to do it.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are guested with Mitchell Hora, a seventh-generation farmer, founded Continuum Ag back in 2015 as an agricultural consulting company, specializing in the Haney Soil Health Test. Uh, today, Continuum is a soil health data intelligence company and uses its top soil software to enable farmers to profit from improving their soil health. Mitchell, excited to have you on the show.
1: Yeah, man. Good to be here. And- Excited to yeah, dig into stuff that's a little bit different than what we typically talk about uh, in the soil health and regenerative ag space. So it'll be fun to uh, go a little bit different direction today. We can still hit on that stuff, of course, but uh, yeah. looking forward to this chat here.
0: Yeah, for sure. This uh, regenerative ag, it seems like it's all over the news, people getting blasted with it. Um, but I think it's important, as you probably aware, I mean, to have. Some diversification in health or in ag, and then also in commercial real estate investing, where you're also invested in a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the principles of soil health is diversity, uh, foster diversity. Now, typically, we think about that as diversity of plants and mimicking mother nature, mimicking the natural prairie system. But you know, diversifying where your investments are, of course, is a good strategy. Diversifying your portfolio, diversifying uh, things that you do in your life. So. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of farmers, you know, think about diversifying as can I add a different crop or should I get into having livestock plus having row crop, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can go a lot of different ways with how you're going to make money and grow a business.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. When when you think about diversity in on the farm, like what's your your go to like, is there like a certain mix or yeah?
1: For us, uh, so my family farm is about a 700 acre row crop operation. We're in southeast Iowa. Okay. Uh, near, near Washington, Iowa. 700 acres, okay. So nothing crazy. Like we're yeah. normal or just slightly below average, even for, for this area. And we don't have any livestock, it's just corn, soybeans. We've diversified by adding additional crops into the system. We grow a lot of cereal rye, and our market for that rye is cover crop seed. We utilize some of it ourselves, and then we sell some of the cover crop seed off farm. Okay. And uh, we're growing cover. We're growing cereal rye over the winter as a cover crop anyway. So now we just take it all the way to harvest and utilize that rye as a new revenue stream. And it fits well into our system of corn, soybeans. But how we do the rye is as a relay crop. So okay. Cereal rye is out there over the winter. We plant our soybeans into the rye in April typically. And then instead of terminating the rye like we would in a normal cover crop, We bring the combine out in July and we harvest the rye over the top of the soybeans. Oh, I like that. So it's fall rye, spring soybean planting, followed by summer rye harvest, and then fall soybean harvest.
0: Gotcha. So you got rye and soy all in one field. Does that change the biodiversity makeup of that soil?
1: For sure. For sure. Yeah, what we're seeing is, We've got, you know, a grass of cereal rye with the legumes of those soybeans growing together. So you're fostering yep. diversity. Cereal rye is scavenging for nutrients, especially nitrogen, pulling a lot of those nutrients out of the soil. Soybeans need a lot of nitrogen. And since now there's nothing available in the soil, necessarily not a lot available in the soil, mm-hmm. the soybeans have to fix their own. And we're seeing just insane nodulation on these soybeans they've got to fix a bunch of nitrogen if they want to compete because they're competing against this grass that's like five foot tall. You know, it'll be 12,000 pounds of biomass per acre. And these beans got to figure out how to compete. So they nodulate like crazy. They've, they compete really well because of those synergies between a grass and a legume going together. Uh, we typically harvest about 30 bushel of the acre rye, nothing crazy, but Thirty bushel of the acre rye, it's worth about fifteen bucks a bushel, maybe even more. Um, okay. and to, our, to ourselves, it's worth even more than fifteen because we'd have to buy rye for eighteen to twenty per bushel, so we can produce mm-hmm. it for a heck of a lot cheaper than that, and okay. then uh, still be able to grow seventy bushel acre soybeans and sell those for you know fifteen bucks a bushel or better as yeah. well. So, I mean, you're talking real money there between oh, the yeah. two crops growing together. And we do that with no fertilizer, no pesticides, no seed treatments, nothing like, and it's just our normal equipment. It's super profitable. It's been amazing.
0: That's great, man. I mean, integrating those two, one grass, one legume, increase that biodiversity, like you said. I mean, what are the, what are the planning steps that you guys took to get there Mm. to this new strategy? Because I feel like there's a lot of planning that perhaps has to go To go before execution, right?
1: Yeah, definitely a lot of planning. And that's actually part of what my company, Contending Mike, does is we sit down with farmers and help to create a plan. We call it a regen roadmap. And we take a look at what have you been doing, what's been successful, what maybe hasn't been successful, what's your goals, and what is our target. And we help to put together a plan. We create plans, and then we assign those plans to fields where we can tweak the plan per field if we need to. For this relay crop thing, how it came about is we've been doing cover crops since 2013. In about 2018 or so, um, we were looking at planting, planting cover crop that fall. Cereal rye was not necessarily readily available because it had really poor yields in the Dakotas that year. I forget, it was a drought or something. Okay. They had really poor yields, and uh, rye wasn't necessarily available. I'm buddies with my local cover crop seed dealer, so we said, hey, we'll just take the winter wheat. And you can sell the rye to the rest of your customers. Like, we don't care. We'll just use winter wheat instead as our cover crop It doesn't really matter. It's going to get about the same thing. It's about the same price. That's fine. You keep the rye for your other customers. No big deal. We'll help you out. And then I was like, well, dad, like this is going to be an ongoing problem because cover crops are going to continue to expand. And uh, we need to figure out how we're going to solve for this issue longer term. I was working with a guy named Lauren Steinlogging. We still work really, really closely with Lauren. Uh, I was on a meeting with him today, actually. Lauren has been using relay cropping for like 15 years now, 10, 15 years. And so I was able to chat with Lauren and with some of my other, um, produce some of my other customers who've been growing small grains say, Hey, how do I harvest this stuff? You know, mm-hmm. how do I grow any, you know, I'm an Iowa farmer. Like, how do I grow anything? That's not corn and soybeans. You know, That's <laughs> yeah. like weird. So I uh, was able to figure out this relay cropping stuff with them. And now this year was our 100 or this year was our fifth year. Doing the relay cropping, and we grew about 150 acres of rye. Um, So, you know, basically turn our 700 acre farm into an 850 acre farm by double up and on some of those acres.
0: Yeah, that's a wild concept, and it's also—I mean, it's smart that you're reaching out to people. Because you guys have never done this before. So bringing in the experts and seeing like, how do I even go about doing this?
1: That's Um, been crucial. It's like, shoot, what kind of rate do I do? Do I have to fertilize this stuff? Do I have to put fungicide on this stuff? How do I take care of like pests? How do I harvest this? How do I combine? Like there are so many unknowns. And, uh, you know, being able to create community and work with other farmers, connect with more people via social media and stuff, that just helps to bring us all together. And now, you know, we've been doing it for a while. Now I've got a bunch of my customers that are doing relay cropping. It's really picking up. Uh, it can work really well. Um, I've got a bunch of materials on my uh, website and on the YouTube page, and there I've got all kinds of materials out there about it. But this relay cropping deal, it's an awesome opportunity. And the biggest thing is, we would love to diversify further. We've also grown, uh, we've grown barley as malt barley for beer. We've grown uh, winter wheat, like I mentioned. That was a relay crop. Mm -hmm. We mostly grow cereal rye as a relay crop for seed. We've grown uh, mustard as well. We got connected with a company out of California that was looking at growing mustard um, for seed. And so we got linked up with them and grew like, I forget what it was, 17 acres of mustard or something like that. Mm -hmm. We've also done some uh, open pollinated corn. So food grade, like heritage corn. And uh, tried a little bit of that. but. The biggest thing has been just growing our own cover crop seed and and uh, having the cereal rye. We've got ample market opportunity for it. We don't have to change a lot of the processing and handling itself. We've got a bin that the rye can go in. It's been a really good op, really good option for us. And yeah, a lot of other farmers catching on as well. And then you get the soil health gains and yeah. diversify. You know where we're spending our time and our resources. And uh, we're going to use a cover crop anyway, so it just fits really well into our system.
0: Mm-hmm. What are you guys seeing when you do the relay cropping from a herbicides, pesticides? Like next to nothing.
1: So really? we don't use any herbicides. Okay, so we've got the rye goes out there in the fall. Now we've been using cover crops since 2013. Yeah, really so it's had a few years to, years to get in 2016. Yeah, so we were, you know, we were working in this direction for a while, working down our seed banks, working down our our issues that are out there, and utilizing pesticides where we need to you know we utilize roundup we utilize herbicides we utilize insecticides only as a very last, last ditch effort mm-hmm. um, same thing for fungicides we've cut our fungicides by about 2 thirds and uh, we've cut wow. our we've cut our herbicides by about 75% this year on our farm wow. dad's been calculating and stuff herbicide costs are still really up this year our yeah. average herbicide costs for both corn and soybeans was $18 an acre as a $18 an acre herbicide costs like that is not very that's pretty much, good especially with the price of these pesticides right now like yeah i mean we've got them pretty dialed but but yeah man in a relay crop system we plant the beans in april into this rye they grow together the rye suppresses the weeds we harvest the, the rye in july we do typically come back through and spray spray a of enlist or roundup and uh just because dad loves ultra clean fields and like doesn't want to see any weeds at all.
0: Oh, I get that. Yeah. yeah, yeah same thing. So we're
1: we're getting aggressive <laughs> on them. You know, we're keeping the weeds out of the system. That's gonna help us to continue to cut back on those pesticides in the future. But shoot, in that relay crop, I mean you're talking a quart of generic roundup middle of July, and that's it. You know, one Just a ounce. quart. Nice. So we did some of our stuff this year where we were going only twelve ounces of Roundup per acre. That's it. Twelve ounces of generic roundup. That's all we need for some of these weeds and stuff now. Like We've just really been able yeah. to take care of so many of these issues, uh, keep the herbicide-resistant weeds out of the system by being aggressive, by utilizing diverse chemistry systems and uh, in these rotations, uh, and but utilize biology to get ahead of it. That's mm-hmm. the only way we're really going to be able to combat against these issues, whether it be with weeds, pests, disease, weather issues, whatever. It's biology that does it. We're not going to yeah. chemistry ourselves out of this. Chemistry is a tool. But it's biology that's got to be the core component that is driving our success.
0: Yeah, I mean, brings me back to the farm alfalfa growing seed back Mm -hmm. in the day, going through walking the fields and just bringing a shovel hacking (laughs) koshas that are I don't know like five feet high and having to haul those things out of of the field when it's like one hundred degrees and twenty percent humidity. I mean, humidity doesn't sound bad, but When you're in the middle of a field,
1: I can get pretty hot. Terrible, terrible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We did a lot of that um, growing up. Uh, We grew a lot of non-GMO beans um, Mm -hmm. as a kid. There was better premiums for them, uh, you know, there multiple years ago. And so, yeah, spent a lot of summers hoeing, uh, hoeing weeds for us. It's water hemp, uh, pigweed. That's our issue here in Iowa um, and throughout a lot of the Midwest. So that's what I remember. Going through and hoeing water hemp out of soybeans—that is just not a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. But now, you know, we're up ahead of those issues, and the the uh, cover crop and suppressing those weeds from growing in the first place—that is the best strategy.
0: Yeah, it's game changing. So you guys yeah. been doing this since 2013. Mm-hmm. So if a farmer is just now hearing about this, they're like, well, shit, it's 2023 right now. So I got to wait 10 years to no. see a benefit or no. so, walk I mean, us through that number
1: one key number one is just we got this regenerative movement continues to pick up i mean stuff happening with carbon intensity stuff happening in the environmental space sustainability markets the consumer really continuing to dial in uh, but the financial institution institutions and our grain buyers and stuff they're all picking up on we've got to document carbon footprint or carbon intensity we've got to yeah. implement sustainable systems. so Step one is identify, you know, how can we reduce tillage out of the system? Maybe a strip till program or reduce to one pass of tillage instead of three. You know, work in the direction. You then get the cover crop into the system. Going from a tillage system straight to no-till is tough. You don't have structure in your system. The tillage has destroyed the soil structure. So if you don't use tillage and you go straight to no-till, that soil is going to be a freaking rock. You know, it Mm -hmm. is going to be just compacted together because there's no structure in it because of the tillage. And that's okay, but it's that system that a lot of tillage using farmers are stuck in where I've got to till and then I've got to till again next year because I've got to get that soil busted back open, get it fluffed up so I can get a seed in the ground. Well, mm-hmm. you can do that because it doesn't have any structure. Yeah, exactly. So if we're going to reduce the tillage, we've got to utilize something that's going to build structure. And the only thing that builds soil structure is roots so you've got to have the cover crop in that system cereal rise the number one cover crop used in the country um good rooting structure good fibrous roots winter hardy works pretty well everywhere in the country there are a wide array of cover crops you can utilize though but just by and large most of the most of the folks listening to this cereal rise to be number one let it grow in the spring plant green and uh and manage that cover crop correctly in the spring but a lot of details to that, a lot of nuances to that, you know. Of yeah, course, yeah. happy to help, but um, it, the key thing is get started on this journey, start figuring out what cover crops can work, how can you reduce tillage, and uh, overall become more sustainable. But don't do it because of these environmental groups and stuff, or because of a company, do it because like you're gonna make more money going this route. Like, that's yeah, what we're doing. it's a, a win for- win, right. It's a win-win. I mean, and, and it's not without heartache, of course. Changing your yep. paradigm and changing your system is tough. And we lost a $100 an acre our first year using cover crops. Like, we screwed it up. Mm. But it, now, it, but that was before this was really taken off. And we didn't have a lot of those technical support and resources out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, that's really what prompted me to start Continuum Mac, was figuring out how do we provide those technical resources and data tools and such Those resources are there now, Um, but uh, it's about experimenting and finding folks that can help you along this journey because it is going to make you more money in the short term, make you more money, and make you more resilient in the long term. Mm -hmm.
0: So with those services, you're out of the Midwest. So what about folks in Pacific Northwest? Like, Does the Continuum Ag have resources available to them yeah. to them yeah
1: we've been expanding like crazy we've actually okay. got farms in our software in 43 states and 20 countries nice uh, we, okay we've hired five new people in the last month so i think we're at 29 people now um now we don't have a lot of stuff up in the pacific northwest we do we have been involved in some projects in washington i've been out to idaho a couple times um got some small uh, small scale things going there but Really, it ends up being we work with local agronomists. We work with local consultants and folks who understand those local nuances, and we can help to provide the data and the software systems to tag team with those local providers. I can't go to a farm in Oregon and say, yeah. here's how you should do things. I don't know how to freaking farm in Oregon. I can provide <laughs> yeah. concepts. I can provide some ideas. I can make connections, but I don't know the nuances of how to farm in Oregon you know, mm-hmm. or or wherever else. Um, so we've got to tap, you know, we tap into those local providers that can help us with the nuances of how to implement a regenerative system in those different contexts. Um, but for yeah, from our side, I mean Topsoil is our system It's topsoilag, and uh, the only way that we're gonna actually get rewarded for doing these sustainability things is if you're able to back it up with data. If you want to yeah. get paid, if you want to make a claim, if you want to do better, you want to use technology, you kind to have data that's yeah that is the core barrier to entry um, so we're just trying to make that simple
0: mhm that's all, i mean, what you see right now is a lot of the you know large cpg food companies it, in the entire industry really yeah. are going to the grower and saying we want you to execute these that's right. these processes this regen ag they don't know anything about it no. but their investors are making them do it because it's a huge initiative for them, (laughs) even though they know nothing about it. And so to get a contract with them, they have to prove that they're, you know, integrating these types of practices into their operations. That's right. And the only thing they can prove that is to have the data to back it up. Exactly. Like you said,
1: that's correct. I mean, they've got to go through audit process and verification. They got to be able to prove to environmental activist groups and stuff like that. Like, Hey, don't look at me like I'm doing something. Here's the data yeah. to back it up, you know. So, but the big thing that we're really watching for, uh, that's driving this, in my opinion, is what happened at COP twenty six. So a couple of years ago, COP twenty six, the big environmental uh, powwow that they have, and okay. at that meeting, sixty percent of the global wealth and the the institutional capital. That controls 60% of the global wealth, $130 trillion under management. They all came together saying, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. And that's all the biggest players in the world. They control the world because they control the money. And they're all saying, we're going to do this carbon stuff. And they put that into the world. Now they've got to figure it out. They've got to figure out how to meet those goals. The big craze over the last couple of years in ag has been these carbon offsets. Mm -hmm. We develop a carbon credit and sell those into a voluntary carbon market as a way for these companies to be able to buy these credits to meet these goals. Well, obviously that is not working. Like 93% of U.S. farmers know about carbon credits, yep. carbon offset markets. Less than 3% of farmers have actually enrolled in one. Huge disconnect. We're trying to build these carbon credits at a financial loss. It just mm-hmm. doesn't make sense. It's not sustainable. What is shifting here is this carbon intensity thing that I mentioned uh, just briefly. And what's really pushing this is part of the Inflation Reduction Act and the 45 Section 45Z tax credit is a low-carbon biofuel tax credit. And what the Inflation Reduction Act did is it now allows for Scope 3 reductions to count towards carbon intensity reductions of biofuels. So what that means is biofuel today – or gasoline today, let's use ethanol, let's use gasoline as the example, but it's it's ethanol, it's biodiesel, renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel, any transportation fuels. Gasoline has a carbon footprint um, with a carbon intensity score of, of about 100. Ethanol has a score of on average 56. And out of 56, corn is more than half the carbon footprint. It has a score of 29. So now we've got the ability to Reduce the carbon footprint of biofuels at the facility. That's a scope one reduction. Mm -hmm. Utilize scope two reductions, um, a.k.a. more renewable energy, to reduce scope two carbon footprint. And then reduce the footprint in the supply chain. And that's where we fit. Farmers that are doing cover crops and managing fertilizer correctly and getting good efficiencies. They have low carbon intensity scores. We can help to document, get that verified, and get paid. It is massive dollars on our farm. We have a carbon intensity score on some of our fields of negative 10 and growing 240 bushels of corn with a score of negative 10. That's worth over $530 per acre in these tax Woo. credits. Yeah. That's what I said. I'm like, dang, like that. Let's go that'll work. <laughs> now. I don't know what the farmer cut there is going to be. All I'm getting at is, yeah, there's intensity. opportunity. There's opportunity there. So the farmer will get a portion of that. The ethanol company needs a portion of that. There's some major cost to creating the tax credits. But what I'm getting at is these carbon insets or scope three reductions, kind of this Mm -hmm. new shift of let's not try to develop a new asset and sell this carbon asset into a voluntary global market. Who knows where it goes and then sell the grain where we normally sell the grain. Let's put the grain and the carbon together and sell them together as low carbon. I like that. That's the shift that's happening here. It's so much better. And uh, a lot of the food and CPG companies, they need to just look at what's happening here with biofuels and figure out how to play with those initiatives because um, it's going to force them to change in a major way. Yeah. So really, to get your carbon intensity down,
0: a good way to go about it is exactly what you're talking about: the relay cropping, getting the data to back up that carbon intensity. Yeah. How much? How many years of data? Do you recommend, you just,
1: one? You don't even need it. That's why I love this too, okay? So like these carbon offsets abide by all these global rules because they're playing in global voluntary carbon markets with registries like VERA, uh, Climate Action Reserve, Gold Standard. These guys have to abide by these global rules that academics set. And we've tried to make those rules fit for agriculture and they don't really work very well because additionality in, you know Our carbon footprint in ag is different every year. It's not a one-time practice change, and it disqualifies early adopters like my family. With carbon intensity, it's not about what you used to do. All that matters is what went into that bushel, or what went into that pound of meat, or what went into that gallon of milk, and so on. What is the footprint and the intensity of that product? That's what I love about it. It levels the playing field. You can choose your own path choose your own mm-hmm. destiny here that the more of these practices that you want to do the lower the inputs that you want the lower your carbon footprint that you want to go after the more premium that you might be able to tap into and the more because the more you contribute to the next player in the supply chain so really interesting to see that change um we've integrated the scoring system into our software now today okay. it's mostly just biofuels okay so folks that are listening that are really diversified. Be looking at how to document the carbon footprint of your farm. But today the scores that are available came from the US Department of Energy, not a ag thing. It's a US Department of Energy thing because they've been looking at carbon intensity of fuels for a long time. Yeah. So they have a scoring system called greet, but it only can score corn, soybeans, sorghum, rice, and sugar cane. Five crops. Okay. So it's really early stages. It's early days of this stuff. There will be other crops get added, but this concept is what is absolutely going to happen, which is document everything that you do on your farm, run the environmental outcomes of those practices, get that third party verified, and that story is going to stay with the product throughout the supply chain. That is absolutely where this is going, and um, and, and is that reoccurring? Is that reoccurring every year? I mean, or how does Every year on your products, you know, so it's here's the crop that you produce and here's that data that goes with the crop. And now the next guy owns it. So when they buy your bushels or whatever, they're buying the data with it. And the data is where the premium comes from. Yeah. If they want to earn tax credits, if they want to tap into sustainable finance, if they want to sell to an end consumer, if they want to create a claim, they need your data to create the claim. And that data is not for free. You know, that's our opportunity here. And what I'm saying and, you know, wanting to, to be the takeaway here is, hey, understand what your data is worth and make sure that you get your equitable share for the value of that data. Don't be greedy. We're not going to make anything if we don't play ball with the next yeah. player. But they need to provide the equitable share for the farmers that are doing the hard work to make them more sustainable. We got to have a little give and take here and some sharing and come together. Yeah. But also it's like, guys, like let's tap into this. Like this is an awesome opportunity for agriculture and fuels and the food supply chain. Like let's figure out how to make this roll and mm-hmm. show what an amazing opportunity agriculture has to, uh, to be the champion around exactly. sustainability, you know? So I don't know, wild stuff. We can, uh, Get down a heck of a rabbit hole there with the, with all that, that's for sure. Yeah, we, we sure
0: can. I mean, you mentioned your, just to give us like an example, you mentioned your carbon intensity score mm-hmm. of minus 10. Yeah. Like, wh- what is the formula to that? And just yeah. give us a little bit of backstory around that yeah. that number.
1: So that number comes from the GREET model and we run that score okay. in our software called Topsoil. Okay, so we run that score um, at topsail.ag and the data that goes into that is what's the crop, what's the yield. What's the fertilizer? Uh, Nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, and lime. What's the pesticides that you're using? Herbicides and insecticides. What's the fuel that you're using? The energy, the natural gas, all that kind of stuff. LP. Um, Are you? What are you doing about manure? Are you using manure? Are you using cover crops? What's your tillage program? It's pretty intense. It's basically everything that goes into that. Yeah, very inclusive. everything, Everything that has a carbon footprint that goes into that bushel or into that production, you got to note it. And where we also help is not only helping farmers to get that score, but help them document the things that they do on their farm so they can create a verified score. Because just making a claim isn't going to be good enough. You got to be able to prove that what you're doing is legit. And that's back to the data. Yeah. You want to make a claim that you're carbon negative, you better be able to back it up. And that's where we're really helping to enable that Um, enable that to be transparent, um, Mm -hmm. scale. And we work with third party verifiers, you know, to, to handle that process.
0: Perfect. So, so what does that look like for someone out in Oregon, you're out in the Midwest, Mm. do they, do you have preferred partners that you work with over there? Like, can you walk us through like, just the general steps on yeah. if a farmer is interested in this in like Oregon, how does Oregon's that work?
1: New. Oregon's new for me. Okay. I don't have a lot of stuff <laughs> out there and this fuel thing you would have to probably get kind of creative. Like, I don't know what the landscape is going to be there. So I would you know if you're a farmer, absolutely can still help to run some of these scores, go to topswell.ag. You can play around with it. Um, you can get decently far completely for free as well. Um, you know, just kind of play around with it. We got a lot of webinars and a lot of, um, events and stuff on our podcast and on our okay. on our YouTube page and stuff as well. If you want to learn more, just search Continuum Ag and you can, or Mitchell Hora, you can, I got tons and tons of stuff out there. But um, really, I think at, in the meantime, especially if you're in Oregon, your grain isn't going into biofuels or you're diversified and growing a lot of different crops beyond corn and soybeans. You just need to be aware of what's happening here start documenting the practices that you are doing on your farm and start exploring. How do you turn those practices into a environmental claim or sustainability claim? Also start talking with the next player in your supply chain, your buyer. What do they want to see? What are their goals? How do you help them to meet their sustainability goals? What's it worth to them and what's your cut going to be? And, um, not necessarily to be greedy or to say, hey, you need to pay me to be more sustainable. That's not what I'm getting at here. What I'm saying is the data costs money. Verification costs money. And yeah, implementing these practices and farming in this manner and doing all the record keeping, going through all the hoops, it costs money. And this is goes towards the marketing side of things. Mm-hmm. These companies are going to utilize this data to improve their margin and to expand their markets and to meet their goals via marketing. Oh yeah. And and the only way that they can market it correctly is by working with us. So we need to be part of that budget because um, we can help them tell the story. And it's legit. That's what I love about this too. Like we can actually be more sustainable, actually lower carbon footprint, actually improve water quality, biodiversity, and what have you, and uh, make this real. It doesn't need to be greenwashed. Like this is legit. And uh, we've got the ability to prove it.
0: Yeah, you hear so much about greenwashing nowadays; like it's a huge issue. I think I saw some. I think like SEC is like cracking down on greenwashing. Um, So it is a huge issue. Um, And what are your
1: thoughts around greenwashing, real quick? Yeah, I mean, we just got to be able to back this stuff up. And and I don't. I my take is, farmer, let's be overly aggressive with documentation. And be very conservative with the claims that we're trying to make um, to under-promise and over-deliver, not yep. vice versa. And um, what I like about ag, once again, is like, I mean, we what we're doing here, like it is legit. I mean, we've been sequestering carbon in our soils to the tune of about 4.9 tons of carbon per acre per year. We've Sounds gotten, like a lot. It's a lot. Um, a lot of these carbon programs, they're saying, hey, maybe we're sequestering about one ton of carbon or a half a ton of carbon per acre per year. We're doing close oh. to five and have the data to back that up. It doesn't fit into the models and stuff that are out there. We've got the actual direct measurement data to be able to back some of these things up. Now, we don't go out there and attempt to market that or attempt to put it in. We don't We don't uh, fall into being able to trigger additionality because we've been doing these practices for a long time. So nobody's mm-hmm. able to tap into utilizing that story. All I can do is talk, saying, hey, we've been sequestering a bunch of carbon, but nobody's able to make any claims off of it because of how these voluntary markets work. But now our low-carbon corn, somebody can utilize, or our low-carbon soybean, somebody can utilize, but it's now it's a scope three reduction. We're part of their supply chain, and yeah. uh, if they want to purchase our low-carbon grain and they want to purchase the data to verify that shows that it is uh, low-carbon, they can do that. Yeah, um, yeah,
0: it'll come at a premium. But yeah. That's the oh, thing. I mean, th- this wave coming. is coming. Yeah. It's happening. It's already here, and it's going to just get more pronounced throughout the, the supply chain. Tax
1: credits, I mean, these tax credits, like it's, oh, yeah. uh, it's already locked in. It's yeah. uh, it, The Inflation Reduction Act was signed a year ago. This is happening, and uh, the tax credits start based on the 2024 crop. I mean, this is going. And uh, the cover crop that we do this fall, the tillage we do this fall, the fertilizer that we do this fall – goes into that 2024 crop which is subject to these tax credits so it's time to for farmers to really dig into this and for the AG um, and fuels community and even outside of that come together and say hey let's make sure that we don't screw this up
0: yep I feel you I love it Mitchell well we got to touch on commercial real estate yeah. I mean sounds like you're pretty excited about it as much as I am
1: yeah I mean uh, so my uh, you know I don't know. My, uh, experience here isn't anything too crazy, but, um, you know, so what I do own a, a commercial, uh, building though, my wife and I do. Um, so it's here in Southeast Iowa. It's in the town of Fairfield. My wife owns a dance studio. It's called high temperature dance Academy. So it has been fun and provided us a lot of, uh, cool experiences that I've got, you know, my company continue mag and she's got her, her dance studio. So, And they've been crushing it and expanding. She had been renting, of course, for the first multiple years of her business. Mm -hmm. And uh, an opportunity came about to buy a building that's right on the town square. You know, we're in small town, Iowa. All these small towns, you know, got their little town square and stuff. right. The building's right on that town square. It was a super old uh, bank. It was a building built in 1838, if I remember it. Like super old really cool old bank vaults in this building as well that are all just solid you know cement and brick and uh cinder block or not even cinders i guess in there it's, it's actually just rock the, the foundation stuff is like rough cut stone uh foundation it is a cool old you know 180 year old building or whatever like and uh so we bought that um it would have been halloween 2022 okay so just a couple months ago yeah uh, we closed out on that building and uh, was able to go in and do some just um really simple renovations and put on some new some new paint and um it's worked really really well so basically the the key thing was like hey we're this dance studio is doing well and needs more room and she's going to be doing it for a long time so rather than build up equity for somebody else and pay yeah. them, why don't we just pay ourselves and, and, uh, buy the, and do the building ourselves. So we did it in that the building is in its own LLC, um, that I'm the, uh, the owner of that LLC. And then the dance studio rents the building, uh, from the LLC. Uh, we did have a tenant, um, in there for a short while as well. There was a, a smaller room in the basement that this guy was, uh, was in on. Uh, so I'm sure a lot of, a lot of the conversations you've had, you know, about dealing with tenants and deal with renters and stuff like oh, that yeah. this guy, uh, he had been <laughs> in this building for like 20 years or something like that. Like a long time, he had moved to different parts of the building, gone through a couple different owners, you know, and he had just been the tenant that kind of comes along with it. And this dude, yep. had, uh, he did like some IT stuff, like um, setting up security systems on homes and stuff like that. But then yeah. he also had like a music recording studio, a bunch of like audio setup and yeah. sound system, you know, and all these uh, instruments and all that. So he had that in the basement and he was fine. Like he was never in the way, he was never around. Um, I've never even met the guy in person, my wife has. But um, when the previous owner that we bought the building from, which was, it was a, a lady that owned a boutique, And her husband, who's a farmer as well. So this was a commercial real estate property for them as well. Farmer. And then uh, his wife had the boutique and she was ready to be out of it. She'd been doing it for like 10 years, was successful, but ready to spend more time with grandkids kind of thing. And uh, when she bought the building like 10 years ago, she upped the guy's rent from $100 a month to $125 a month (laughs) for on the town square. That was great. Great deal for him. I don't know if it'd be a thousand square feet or 1200 square feet, you know, in the basement that this guy was like then renting, had his own basement, had his own like entrance and stuff. I mean, nice deal. Pumped him by $25 and he was like freaking out. So of course I go in and I'm like, Hey, we got to have a contract. You know, we're going to do this correctly. We're going to do this by the book. Like, I don't know this guy. I didn't vet him. He just came with the building. Yeah. And uh, so I, you know, give him my, and we were like, my wife could use this space at some point. We don't really care to have this tenant in the basement. Like, no big deal. So I shot him a proposal and a contract for $500 per month. Very Still pretty reasonable. reasonable. Very reasonable rent. Super right reasonable. on the town square, a nice spot, very reasonable rent. And uh, yeah, uh, he packed up and no longer there. So, <laughs> uh, that's, my Hilarious. <laughs> that's my experience. That's, with, that's no, one way.
0: Too. It's one way to get them out, but it's, it's wild. I mean, that same, we, we see that all the time. You know, yeah. there's, you know, just mom and pop owners all across the country in these pretty big, um, assets, you know, 20, yeah. 30, 40 doors. And yeah, they haven't raised rents in 10 years. And that, but the problem is they also haven't renovated. They haven't kept up maintenance. Know. The roof is bad. You know, yeah. the tenants are kind of living in a very subpar situation, but they're okay with it because the rents are, are very low. But, um, yeah, we see that a lot. So yeah, we do
1: need to, uh, you know, we we do have some upgrade things that need to get done with the roof and, and some of that. Now, you know, it's it's uh, my wife's dance studio that is in there and that's it. You know, there is no, yeah. Um,
0: yeah, there's good. no residential. Single area. tenant. Like,
1: only, yeah, it's just one, you know, and, and she's got the whole thing. Uh, so we do have some projects though, that need to need to get done, but I don't know. I, to me it was a good opportunity to you know kind of diversify where we've got money at. Um, I own a farm as well. So when I graduated Iowa State, I bought a farm. So we've got forty acres of land. Um, we own the land personally, but then my farm is its own LLC that mm-hmm. rents the land from me personally. So the farm is its own LLC, rents from me personally. The dance studio is its own LLC. And rents from our our commercial property holding company. Um just a good way to be able to utilize, you know, protecting against liability, of course, for sure. But also, you know, be able to utilize uh the the legal system that we've got, the tax system that we have, and um be able to build up equity for for our family in the properties. So it's been a good exactly. Um I don't know that I'd need to go and buy a bunch more of it anytime soon, you know, but, well, but yeah, at least, at least nice. not actively. No, no, no. When if, if stuff comes up, you know, the, the main next thing would probably be more so about building something, mm-hmm. you know, to, uh, to go and be able to build, especially for a dance studio, you know, it's got to kind of be, uh, the right type yeah. of property. Like you can't put a dance studio anywhere and she's got like 230 students. So yeah. You can't just put 230 kids in any building.
0: It's kind of hard to dance in a, you know, a locker. Yeah. Doesn't little, work. A little safe office building. That's right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but, but no, Which it's, still have it's you, a fun deal.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, before we head off, I mean, is there any dances that you've learned? I mean, no. I got to know.
1: <laughs> no, dude, I'm staying out of it. My, uh I've got a daughter who's not quite two, who she's started to, uh, to, of course, do some dance here. She's still in diapers and all that. She's like 21 months and uh so she's uh my wife's got her roped into roped into the dancing but there you go but no man on my side i uh i help out you know with emceeing the events and running the music and stuff but that's that's the extent of it for me i stay out
0: of no hip work. shaking for you fair enough <laughs> all right mitchell was there we, we covered a lot of ground it's going to be wild me trying to summarize this one in the newsletter but it's i'm going to give cute. it a go <laughs> But is there anything you'd like to leave us with? I mean, we've talked about, I mean, really a lot, but the relay cropping concept is huge. Farmers just need to think towards the future. Like they already know they, they already inherently do this in their planning process, but it's, but it's doing it the right way with data backed strategies. Um,
1: everything, everything to me boils down and sums up to a couple main things. One be looking at implementing regenerative practices as offensive management tools. It's got to make return on investment. We're, we're running businesses here. Mm-hmm. Um, just like, you know, if you're going to diversify where your investments are, it's got to create return on investment. It's got to yeah. a smart business decision. Same thing when it comes to regenerative ag relay cropping is just one of the really unique ways that we've been able to do it. And then number yep. two, the data, whether it be for carbon intensity or other initiatives, the data is incredibly important own that data make sure you control it and make sure that you uh monetize it correctly that's what it boils down to i love it and if you've got kids in fairfield iowa send them to the dance studio because my <laughs> <work>. <laughs> fair, fair enough we'll put a
0: dance studio in the show notes there we go there we go <laughs> yeah, man. all right mitchell thanks so much for coming on man it's been a pleasure and i hope all the listeners you know gain some little golden nuggets here um Yeah. It's great to have you on Mitchell. Appreciate it.
1: Hey, good to, good to chat. And yeah, like I said, lots, uh, plenty more folks want to, uh, want to discuss it further. All
0: right. Sounds good. Well, listeners, hope you found some valuable insights into today's episode. Feel free to check out next week's, well, we will be diving into further real estate investments. So till with that, till next time. See ya.